Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Schiller. And it is 2020. I took a little bit of a break for a couple of weeks. Hope that was okay with you. Um, I had a good little break, actually. Um, and I caught up with editing some interviews. So interview for this episode is going to be with Kin Lane, the API evangelist or X slash current API evangelist, but specifically now the evangelist for Postman a tool which developers use to model APIs. And if you don't know what an API is, well, actually the interview will help you understand a little bit, but it's sort of a common way that applications communicate with each other. You probably use them all the time when you use applications without realizing. Um, and he has been famous as the API evangelist for some time, and now he's working with Postman, a very popular tool in that space. So I have an interview with him later from late last year. First, though, I will kick off with my links and actually first a couple of articles I wrote. I didn't really do a uh, sort of roundup of 2019, 2019. I just never really got round to it. And now it kind of feels too late to do it, to be honest. But I do have one predictions post currently on DZone published actually on New Year's Eve. My predictions for what will happen in open source. So if open source is your thing, then take a look, see if you agree with me. Let me know in the comments on the article. Uh, there's a few controversial ones there, a few less controversial ones. So please do let me know and uh, let's see what happens in a little under 360-something days. Also, late last year, an article that was posted up on DZone that I didn't quite get to really promote, but it's already been quite popular with a lot of comments, as I was expecting. This was me having another experiment with Linux, Linux desktop, and, uh, well, how I got along, really, to be blunt. Um, and I guess the summary, and there's going to be a part two, was more on Linux on the desktop has got a lot better. But what annoyed me, and it's something that actually annoys me with a lot of developer tools, and let's face it, whilst Linux is not necessarily completely meant for developers. It's used by a lot of developers and created mostly by developers. And one thing that developers have a tendency to do is assume and say that something is simple when it isn't. And that is actually the thing that bothered me the most. I encountered lots of new Linux desktop uh, distributions that I was interested to try, and I do try, where they say they're just simple. Just do this, just do that. And that's not the case. And quite often you have installation issues, you have compatibility issues even before you start using. And this is what annoyed me the most. Be honest with people. Don't say that something is simple when it isn't. And that was my main issue. But those aside, actually things are getting better and I will start digging further in my follow-up post coming soon. But if you want to see the first one and uh, maybe add some comments there, if you agree or disagree, then please do over on DZone as well. Link in the show notes. Quite a grab bag of assortments of links from other locations in this episode. First, uh, an interesting, or no, entertaining, I think is a better word for this post on Yanko Design by Srishti Mitra. This is uh, Meet the Unnecessary Designs That Have Taken Internet by Storm, part two. I guess there was a part one. I should see a link to part one. This... This is a post about uh, Matt Benedetto, the creator of the Unnecessary Inventions page on Instagram, where he posts photos of, um, well, as the name says it, unnecessary designs or unnecessary inventions. And there's some 
great pictures here. The um, bubble wrap. I had a blank on the, uh, the what it was called there. Bubble wrap rolling popping machine that you mount on your belt, which looks kind of weird. Uh, a mass AirPods holder box that also charges. I guess that could be semi-useful, although how you know which ones are paired with each other, I'm not sure. Lego shoes for picking up Lego blocks as you tread on them. Uh, an ear-clippable toilet roll dispenser for mopping up tears. Sponges for your tears. I don't know how this works with glasses wearers, but anyway. And a mass scroller and tapper for Instagram and things like that on feeds. Um, maybe going along with people who are also a fan of Instagram, a four-finger synchronized nail clipper. A baguette backpack holder thing. A chip sucker-upper. A giant AirPod. And a bath mat of Mark Zuckerberg. There you go. <laughs> so, Actually, some wonderful photos. God knows how people ever come across these inventions or create them in the first place. Probably just so they end up on a blog. But if you need a little bit of light entertainment, then take a look. Next an increasingly uh, popular blog for me to follow by Colin Campbell on Polygon, the man who made Wolfenstein, not Wolfenstein 3D. This is actually interesting, and the article goes into detail of Wolfenstein 3D, which essentially borrowed the original Wolfenstein from uh, Silas Warner, paying him a very paltry sum of $5,000 to then uh, create the version that I guess became much more commercially successful. And Silas was very well known in gamer circles for his original creation, but was a typical developer in that he didn't really market it very well. And when offered $5,000, he thought that was a good deal. And of course, probably that in his life realized it wasn't, but it was somewhat too late by then. It reminded me um, a lot of oh, so many posts, I suppose, the creator of the original Monopoly. I think I covered this in a previous episode where something similar happened to them. Someone comes along, gives them a paltry sum for their invention. Also, the creator of uh, what inspired MS-DOS, Microsoft also paid a paltry sum to, et cetera, et cetera. History is littered with examples of this, unfortunately, and this is just another one. Um, if you're a fan of Wolfenstein and either version, then uh, take a look. And um, he's unfortunately now dead, so he can't really be uh, recompensed for his work but he does leave a widow who is actually kind of fighting his corner right now so maybe there's a there's a way to help her out at the very least next an article on vice from jason kobler 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 depends if he's pronouncing it the german way i guess this is a strange title the rise of skywalker is a preview of our drm fueled dystopian future now if you haven't seen the latest star wars film firstly i probably would say don't bother i didn't actually think it was that great frankly i actually preferred cats and uh, shoot me down for saying that. Feel free to let me know how wrong or right I am at com slash contact. And I'm happy to have the discussion. But anyway, there's one scene in it, spoiler alert, where C-3PO uh, has been able to translate some essential text from Sith, a forbidden language. He is a translator robot, but is, un, uh, is not allowed to translate a forbidden language. So he has to be hacked into and reset to enable this vital plot to continue and the author of this article claims that is an example of a dystopian drm fueled future 
little bit clickbaity, <laughs> but it's kind of an interesting valid point of the extremities that could happen if we let DRM rule our worlds. I would actually probably argue that DRM has become less of a, an issue than it was in the past. Streaming is is a kind of holdout for it, but streaming is different from many other things and how you would DRM certain parts of a robot, etc. I don't know if DRM is even the right word for what is being described in this scene, but I guess the potential dystopian future of too much control over things you need to access is maybe an interesting perspective on it instead. So, yeah, I feel like the article is a little ridiculous, but maybe the point it's posing is an interesting one. Uh, if you could think of anything else, anything else dystopian that could be created by over-control and over-protection on digital devices, is it already happening? What's an extreme case it could happen? Could you imagine a, a book around this kind of dystopian level of control? Hmm. Let me know. As always, christianchillard.com slash contact. Next, an article on Medium uh, by John Samuel, just on John Samuel's own personal account, called Rethinking the Command Line. This was uh, a post I found interesting from a sort of UX perspective. The command line is popular in certain fields as a way of interacting with a computer. It's very efficient, but requires... Uh, I actually remember this when I studied what was then called human-computer interaction that having to remember commands is the most efficient way of using a computer. But of course, it requires a certain level of understanding to be able to understand those in the first place, um, which is often difficult. And this article goes into some thoughts, and this is from about six months ago, but it goes into some thoughts on how that could be improved with more intelligent completions and things like that. There are partial completions, but it's a bit inconsistent as with many kind of developer tools vis-a-vis my comments on Linux earlier as well, where sometimes these things are inconsistent. It depends if someone has implemented them, and quite often on command lines they haven't. So how could we make the command line as powerful but more user-friendly? Uh, it's interesting. Um, the post doesn't really go that deep into it, and I would challenge that if any of this will actually happen. And some shells, which are kind of your options for interacting with a command line, like fish, and ZSH do this a little bit to a certain extent better than some other types of shells. Um, but there is this barrier to entry that I think sometimes is almost intentional. I guess the shell gives you uh, a lot of power and from the famous Spider-Man line with great power comes great responsibility. Maybe putting that barrier to entry means that people can do less damage to their machine or setup as well. That could be argued that's an intentional design decision, but I'm not 100% sure if that really is the case or not. Anyway, if you're a regular interactor with the command line and would be interested to see how it could change, then, then have a read of the post. And finally, this was from a month or so ago, but I never really got round to mentioning it on the podcast. This was an article by Will Kelly on opensource.com called Hiring a Technical Writer in the Age of DevOps. This is an article that argues that technical writers, something true to my heart, should have a more prominent role in DevOps and be more a part of the DevOps process, which I see a lot of teams trying to do and, and failing or succeeding with different levels of success. But uh, it should be more embedded in that developer workflow, I guess. And there are many ways you can do this. I think this would be an interesting article to get on to the Write the Docs podcast. Uh, maybe we'll talk to Will or whoever he interviewed in the article and go into some more detail on this. 
Incidentally, there was an episode of the Write the Docs podcast as well, just published just in the new year. I wasn't on it because I was away, but uh, it was speaking with uh, Alan, who maintains or not maintains, but is a, is a moderator of the Reddit technical writing subreddit, which was a very interesting interview. Shame I did not get to take part, but you'll enjoy it nonetheless. And now, as I mentioned earlier, is my interview with Kin Lane, now of Postman. Enjoy. My name is uh, Kin Lane. I'm Chief Evangelist at Postman, uh, also probably known as the API Evangelist, uh, covering the technology, business, and politics of API since July 2010. So um, just joined Postman the last uh, in the last couple months. Not much is changing for me. I'm still doing what I do, but... Uh, really uh, get a little more traction because I now have a tool uh, that developers love and is very relevant in the space where before it was pretty academic consulting strategy and, and just API, blah, blah, blah. Well, actually, I wouldn't mind knowing a little bit more about what, what you did there because the API evangelist could go in many different ways. Um, I'm assuming it was probably a mixture of kind of client work as well as blogging a lot, presentations, that kind of thing, or... Yeah, what what did you actually do as the API evangelist? What what did that what did that even mean to APIs? I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely it's been definitely a long journey. Um, and so, I mean, I'm I'm an engineer. I started as an engineer, but I was uh, uh, an executive running a, a SAP events, and I ran Google events as well. Ran Google I/O and Developer Days for a couple of years. Uh, and I just kind of saw the potential of the cloud and mobile at that time. And I started, uh, uh, I didn't want to be an executive anymore. I wanted to be getting my hands dirty doing things. Um, but I wasn't quite sure what was going on with this whole API thing. And in the first couple of years, I, I tried being the, the evangelist for a couple different APIs, uh, specifically a, a print one in New York and a, a business directory one in San Diego or in, actually in Hollywood. And, uh, and that just didn't really feel right. So I just started kind of studying the APIs in general and, and the business of APIs at that time, because 2011, 12, that was very much the age of Apogee, Mashery, and 3Scale. And it was all, you know, really where the money was at with venture capital-wise and discussion-wise was, was how do you, you know, how do you manage your APIs? Uh, how do you launch a portal? How do you publish your docs? How do you rate limit? Um, and, and generate revenue from your APIs because everyone's going to launch the next Twitter and, and be the next next whatever. And so I just started studying that that business of APIs and talking about how do you tr- create products and, and develop uh, these new 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 lines of business uh, using APIs and become the next Twilio and the next Stripe and and all of that. And along the way, I kind of saw that a lot of it wasn't very technical and was um, the business is very important, but there's actually a lot of politics going on when it comes to venture capital and when it comes to open data and all of that. And it led to me going to Washington DC and doing a, 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 a one year fellowship as a presidential innovation fellow doing open data and APIs. And then um, I started an event called API strategy and practice with three scale and we ran that for nine events and then we gave it to the Linux Foundation. And so um, I don't I didn't dub myself the API evangelist. Other people just saying because um, I 
what didn't have an API behind me. They were just like, he's, uh, I don't know what to call him. He's the API evangelist, I guess. And, um, and then I just spent the next five, six years just studying, talking to people, um, startups all the way up to enterprise, government agencies that come over there to Europe and work with banks and the European commission and, uh, other government agencies trying to help figure out this whole API thing and what's going on. So, um, and then, you know, Postman, I've helped Postman since early days and Abhinav, uh, our CEO and I really get along and we kind of see the space in similar ways. And so he, we just, he wants to invest in me and I want to invest in them because I really believe what they do for developers. And so here I am. I mean, I'm just really, my focus is trying to understand all of this and try to be as honest about it and not have always the vendor bend to what I'm trying to say and not be venture, I guess, capital led in what I'm saying and try to be a little more honest about the realities of, of what's happening in enterprise and, and see people seem to appreciate it. Would, would it be fair to maybe say or hypothesize that uh, the API evangelist isn't needed so much anymore um, because people kind of get it and it's a bit more established procedure? Yeah, I would, I would, I would stand behind that. I feel like that's, um, and there's, there's plenty of advocates and evangelists and, um, I would say that's the only thing that's changed since 2010 is businesses, you know, it's mainstream businesses. It's not the Twilio's and stripes and those that I'm talking to it's insurance companies and banks and healthcare companies. And I wouldn't say everybody gets it, but there's enough information out there and there's enough pundits and there's enough knowledge that, yeah, um, I don't, I definitely agree. I don't think I'm as needed as I used to be. What attracted you to Postman over some of the other options you mentioned there um, or others that, that are also available that you could have also probably become an evangelist for <laughs> if you'd wanted to? What attracted you specifically to Postman? Um. I mean, if you followed my work at all, it's I'm I'm very hard to please. I'm very picky about what the startup is doing and, and how they're serving. Uh, and I'm I get really frustrated by companies um, over promising, under delivering. Um, Postman, I would say ethically, I, I'm in alignment with the CEO and the CTO. I know them personally, so I know what they believe. Um, the tool itself is very beloved by developers um developers i mean it's everywhere but when i was uh doing enterprise consulting over the last two or three years i was doing a lot of going into enterprise organizations doing workshops government agencies healthcare insurance and i would ask people what are they using and postman always was a was a tool that came up and i would ask people to raise their hand how many people are using postman and everyone uses postman and so it's just a very ubiquitous tool that developers love and it makes their life easy um easier so i I really believe in that and i want to try to you know um be part of that um because i've had other tools that were similar and then they get gobbled up and acquired and they go away and that makes developers sad and that makes me sad so um not that that you know i'm pretty confident that's not going to happen with postman but i also want to be along for the ride to be a uh be a voice to help steer steer that to make sure developers are are front and center in our journey and 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 what's happening so i um i think it's an important tool um it's 
important enough for me to be there and, and be a voice uh, as it grows and as it evolves and make sure it, 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 it stays, stays a developer tool. What would you say your, your favorite three features for, on Postman are and why, I guess? Um, well, one, the, the unit of, of value, the core unit of value of Postman is, is the request. Being able to make an HTTP 1.1 request and tailor that request and see the details of that response, see the headers, see the, the raw response, see the pretty response. That that unit of value, the request is is it's what what this is all about for everybody. So that's the number one thing that I why Postman matters, and that's the feature every developer uses Postman for. Um, two, being able to save that request as a collection. Uh, that's that collection. Being able to save that, craft that request exactly as you want, save it, add the properties and parameters as you want. And then share that with someone via a URL or via um, a Teams or, or otherwise, and have it have the same meaning when you give it to a, a, another developer or another business unit or or even you know a, another group in another country. I mean, that's you know to be able to craft a collection in Seattle and then uh, ha- you know have it mean the same thing in Tel Aviv. You know that that following evening as they come online is is powerful because that that transcends, you know, cultural language, you know, it, 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 it just sticks. It means something. So, so collections are, are really powerful and, and I think um, really important as far as what we're doing. Um, third, I would say uh, environments because you can abstract away variables, key value pairs from those collections, from those requests. So you can have one collection that you can run in, in multiple contexts, um, depending on what keys I have in those variables or what values. So I can create a, you know, the same shopping cart order uh, collection that, that looks for a product, adds it to the cart, checks out and, and pays for it and then gets the invoice. But that, that environment lets me do that in three different countries for three different products but it's the same underlying collection being run. Um, but the environment brings that, 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 that context. And then it allows you to abstract away your keys and your secrets and get a little bit more organized about how you manage your, your secrets across your, your API usage, which I'm pretty confident most organizations don't have a strategy for how developers uh, manage their tokens and keys and, and all of that good stuff. So yeah, requests, collections, environments are the three fundamental uh, units of value for, for Postman for me. And then all the rest is kind of, uh, you know, supportive and ancillary to that docs, mocks, tests, all of that. But those three units, key units are really where the, the rubber meets the road for me. You gave me quite a nice segue there for the next question. Based on the, I think you said about eight to 10 years of experience evangelizing and consulting on APIs, what what would be your your kind of best tips for uh, API strategy, especially, I, I suppose, based around um, what you've seen people get get wrong or not get as right as they could many times in the past? Um, well, 
Um, I mean, keep it simple. That's why REST APIs are so important. Um, and as, as appealing as Hypermedia, GraphQL, gRPC, Kafka, WebSockets, all the other valuable approaches to APIs in a toolbox, those are very useful. Starting with, with simple web APIs that use HTTP 1.1 and our, our um, simple designs, that's the, the piece that I think most organizations miss is rather than getting a handle on all of their, their digital capabilities using basic web APIs, they're off to the next whatever, you know, whatever the next cool thing is. Um, either developer-led because it's just cool and shiny or vendor-led because the vendor tells you it's, it's a thing that you have to buy from them. Um, I see too many organizations who are just getting a handle on the web API thing off to the next race, and, and you, you need to get better at uh, documenting, communicating, iterating upon the simple web API de designs. Uh, I mean, I would say get a handle on the versioning, you know, the evolution of your your digital capabilities before you really chase anything else. And if you can get that, that core piece where you're defining, designing, deploying, and then iterating upon uh, all of your organizational capabilities consistently across teams, if you're doing that version after version, then you've nailed it. You know, then then you can start thinking about about broadening that. But keep it simple. Don't 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 get distracted. And and really that team communication, doing it well at scale, not just one team, being able to consistently deliver documentation so it looks the same across all teams and and you know um, API design across teams. If you can do that, you're 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 doing it well. Why do you think people do get so distracted by the new alternatives? I mean, a couple of years ago, it was GraphQL, which is still popular. But now I've heard increasing people amounts of people talk about gRPC as well. Um, do you think maybe that sometimes sort of HTTP-based APIs are just so simple and that gets kind of boring for developers? <laughs> That's all it is? Or are there actual other technical reasons that people have switched to those newer ideas? Yeah, I mean, gRPC, it's very much performance. Mm. Um, GraphQL is very much having a, a large schema and and being able to uh, manage that schema and, and, and effect, effectively deliver it as part of a UI, UX kind of uh, process. Um, so there are reasons, um, but I don't think uh, everyone thinks through those reasons and, and definitely weighs them. As, as well as they should when they, when when they jump. So yeah, I think boredom, uh, shiny new object. I think not understanding. I think a lot of people don't understand, you know, the nuance of good API design and and not just good API design. The the document, you know, the other stops along the lifecycle, documenting it well, making sure there's code libraries, code samples, making sure there's good examples and things are consistently designed. I just don't think people care at that level um, to learn. And so they're like, oh, well, GraphQL totally makes more sense. You know, it's way more intuitive than, than REST. Well, have you learned, you know, good RESTful design or, you know, gone, gone through the, the, the maturity levels? And, and no, well, that's probably why you don't understand it. And um, so I, you know, I, I, I like GraphQL. I, I like gRPC. I see the potential. I see the reasons. I, I, 
I get event driven, you know, pub sub and Kafka, I get all of that. Um, but I don't think people are very good at thinking through the problem at hand and then looking in their toolbox with a pragmatic kind of thoughtful eye as far as, well, what tool is the right one to apply to this? They tend to just be bored and, and want to learn that new thing. And, and that sounds exciting. So let's do that. That seems cool. And they don't think about the technical debt or what's going to happen down the road when they get bored again and want to jump to the next shiny thing. Who's got to own that? You know, there's always some, some of us who have to actually own that and maintain it. Yeah. And, um, I mean, Postman, as far as I'm aware, is mostly optimized anyway for the, the kind of prototyping and um, development of APIs, generally then not used for actually creating the, the final APIs in the, in, at the, in the end, I, I guess. Maybe some people do. <laughs> but but what, what would you say are some of the tools that, that you have seen that help people get them into production the best ways or most web frameworks and most kind of backend frameworks pretty, pretty all equal these days. Yeah, that's a, that's a really tough one. I would say that is definitely perpetually and persistently the, the, the hardest stop of the API lifecycle. If you ever landed on the homepage of API Vantos, I have what I consider like I think a hundred stops along the API lifecycle from defined to deprecation. And deploying your API, I mean, back in the 2011, 12, when I first started, people would go, well, which which API provider, Mastery, Apogee, or Threescale should I use to deploy my API? I go, none of them. None of them deploy your API. You got to deploy your API. And that's still very true. There's not a lot of, um, there's not one clear winner when it comes to deploying your API. And as you said, Postman, Postman won't deploy your API. You can, you can mock it. And you can get pretty close, you know, so you can design mock and you can set up your tests and, and, and have it mimicking, but you can't actually deploy your API. Now I'm, I'm building a few proof concepts for taking that collection and deploying it to Amazon and Azure and Google. But really this comes down to the, the many different ways in which people deploy their API infrastructure. And there's not one common way of doing it. So when you approach an organization, you know, they're using one language, they're using another framework, they're using a mix of gateways uh, that were sold to them by various vendors. Um, and so trying to nail that down and say, here's here's how you get prescriptive about deploying your API or, or best standards. It's just really tough. I mean, and then you got serverless coming out, you know, you got the resurgence of gateways, you know, gateways. Uh, for helping you not just manage, but also deploy your API. Um, but, you know, that word's interchangeable, you know, like Kong and Nginx, and these won't actually help you deploy your API. You still have to deploy them. They're very much management. Um, uh, but AWS API Gateway, you can actually deploy your API on there. You can actually deploy and, and, and wire it up to your DynamoDB or your RDS or your Lambdas. Um, so that's, that's tough. That's a hard one. And there's just, you know, I would say there's cloud platforms that have emerged to help people like take a spreadsheet and deploy it as a, as an API for kind of non-user or non-developers. But, um, I, in my experience, you know, while I wish they did, most non-developers could care less about the API deployment. Cause even once they deploy that API, they're like, what's next, what do you do with it? You know? Um, 
so yeah, it's a it's a really tough one. And and while we're working at Postman to come up with ways of of streamlining and and helping developers do that, yeah, it's it's still I think a, a untapped opportunity for for someone out there. I actually just wanted to go off on a tangent because your your you have mentioned it already in this interview, and it's on a lot of your blogs. This whole sort of uh, skepticism <laughs> around the startup machine. Um, I mean, what? I mean, I, I, I do kind of understand where that comes from because um, <laughs> I sort of, from my with my my hat on as writing about a lot, I, I kind of somewhat share the same opinion as you. But, but um, yeah, what? What what do you think the main problem there is? And uh, I guess what what do you think some of the alternatives to it might be? Um, I think. The, more, the core problem gets at why are you doing this um, and being honest about that and that why, you know, it could be just as we were talking about with GraphQL and, and new shiny things is you just like tech toys and you want to play with the next thing. There's an actual no business purpose in doing this um, to you're doing this purely to make money, um, which is fine. Um, don't get me wrong. I mean, you got to make money in this, but. Um, if that's not coupled with actually solving a real problem, a business problem, then that's probably not a good thing. And if you're inventing problems uh, along the way or creating new problems just so they can be solved and generate revenue, um, you just really start hitting a whole host of, of problems that we just don't need. And I, and I feel like, um, we're, we're really good at creating problems and we're not always so good at solving them. And I think the, that investors are just fine with that. And I think some IT leaders and, and, and technical leaders are just fine with that. Um, I don't think it's always the right answer. And I don't think it's good for, for end users always. And it's good for our privacy and it's good for our security. So, um, I think the core of it is just we got to get better at asking well, why are we doing this? Mm. Should we? And being able to say no, 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 let's not do it. But suck at that. <laughs> now I usually have one final question. I'm going to kind of ask you the same question twice um, with two different hats. So moving forward, the next six months, uh, first one would be what's planned for Postman, and the second would be what do you think is kind of the the next six months to a year. In, in APIs, uh, do you think trends, designs will change? Uh, people will just keep relentlessly pushing forward to using other platforms. It doesn't matter. What's your predictions there? Uh, for Postman, it's it's very much uh, API first, um, really trying to help people think beyond a code first approach. Um, and that's, you know, our roadmap, definitely our roadmap led uh we have a lot of a lot of features that are coming out that are trying to get people to move beyond just using us as, as a request or a http client and and you know actually use us to, to create apis to design mock document test kind of that contractor of an approach um but it's that's being led you know partially by our business model but mostly because it's it's a healthy way of thinking about apis if you can define a contract and then test 
and and deploy and, and operate against that contract that's that's smart that's that's efficient if you can be designed first rather than code first that's efficient you're going to save money there's just definitely a lot of good things that can come out of that good discussions conversations feedback loops so that's really the postman 2020 is is um api first i would say just real light on that is uh getting more non-developers as part involved in that process because having business stakeholders at least be able to not crack open postman and participate in those conversations api first is, is really important that's so that speeds up that business feedback loop. So that's that's all of 2020. That's going to be our biggest message. Um, as far as the API space, um, I would say probably, you know, the, the event-driven conversation um, coupled with gRPC is going to dominate is how do you, how do, you do two, two speed APIs, I guess, as Google would put it is um, how do you, you know, define your REST APIs, but then also have Webhooks is kind of the 101 layer of, of event driven. And then how do you have, you know, uh, Kafka, Nats, um, and then all the way to gRPC and be able to have channels, topics, have two way uh, real time uh, streaming APIs. And so that, that, cause that's kind of a maturity point. Like there's a lot of people who need that performance, need that throughput, have that high volume of data. And so you'll see a lot of conversations like that. And, you know, Open API, formerly known as Swagger, really dominates the REST API version. That async API is overlaps with that and then covers the, the event driven Kafka and being able to, def, you know, properly define, design, deploy, and deliver your APIs and then document on top of both of those is, I think, really what, what you're going to hear a lot of drumbeat about in 2020. That was my interview with Kinlane of Postman. Okay, my events calendar is warming up again. I actually have a few coming up over the next few months. I will be going to FOSTEM, first weekend of February, first and the second in Brussels. I think this is my fifth year now. And just before that, also in Brussels, I will be at Sustain Summit, um, which covers sustaining open source. I'd love to hear from anyone who's going to be there. After that, later in February, I'm actually going to be at Megacom, a tech writers event in Jerusalem, which will be interesting. And at the moment, I am also going to be at South by Southwest in the uh, middle of March, back in Austin, Texas, to cover stuff there. So quite a few different places you can meet me. I am cutting down on travel a little bit, but um, I'm just selecting certain events that are interesting and important to me. So there's a few you could see me at. I've already sprooked a few of the articles I recently put out. Um, and yeah, early in the year, so still figuring out what my next priorities and activities are going to be. But the podcast will be continuing at least for the next few months in its current form. I might invigorate what it does in the near future, but for now it'll stay as it is. I already have a few interviews edited and ready to put in the next episodes, so you can look forward to those over the next few weeks. But in the meantime, if you love what you heard, please rate, review, share wherever you heard this podcast. Please head along to christianchiller.com slash support to donate or buy merchandise or things like that. And sign up for my newsletter if you haven't already at christianchiller.com slash newsletters. Until the next time, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.